and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us a little deeper into the best of the food books. This week I'm with Turkish Cypriot chef and author Selin Kiazim. Her latest book, Three, builds some seriously tasty dishes for the festive season using her trio of acid, texture and contrast. Whether it's the party in the mouth or yeah, or the culinary voyage, it's like you're on this journey. You may remember me chatting to Claire Finney, author of The Female Chef, a couple of weeks ago, who described Selin as one of the women redefining the hospitality industry in the UK. I asked Selin what she thought that meant. Uh, good question. I mean, that's, that's very nice of Claire to say. Um, I think I just always try and be myself. Um, and... You know, I have a brilliant business partner, um, Laura, as well, who kind of really shares the same sort of ethos with me in in that hospitality is a beautiful industry. But uh, and people, I think, don't do enough to kind of shout about the good things about the industry or all, all, all people hear about the bad bits. Right. And we have always tried to sort of slowly but surely try and promote some of the good stuff um, and also to, I guess, just know that there are things that need to be worked on though you know no one wants to be working those astronomical hours and no one wants to work in kitchens where they're shouting and screaming and things and I worked for Peter Gordon for many years and I was very fortunate to grow up in that environment kind of I say grow up grow up in and as a young chef uh, in an environment with wonderful people and and a, and a brilliant kitchen ethos and for Peter and we'll talk a little bit about Peter later but but he's really quite extraordinary and he is an enabler of women but also everyone in the kitchen isn't he tell us about that beautiful part of hospitality that he has helped to create and that you've kind of taken on there are many brilliant things about Peter and and one of them is that he there are no rules or regulations there's no he doesn't care how it's it was supposed to be and I think the people for and chefs for many years have been very obsessed with the old school way of doing things, you know, and this whole macho, macho vibe and things like that. And, and he, that was just never him. He was just, he's just a good person, a very knowledgeable person, a fantastic cook and um, believed in, in nurturing, you know, the people in his kitchen and really looking after them. And it was just all very natural and effortless in a, in a way, I think it's more difficult to, to, to be that, you know, that in, in, in some kitchens where there's that, there's that horrible atmosphere uh, and people get shouted at and things in a way that's people put that on that it's more difficult to do that than to actually just be yourselves you know yeah yeah and and also it's about inspiration isn't it I mean his great inspirations came from traveling as a New Zealander he was part of that you know overseas experience that uh, lots of people from Australia and New Zealand are all about and they they soak it all up and they you know kind of go Anthony Bourdain on it all don't they and they sort of you know pick up amazing dishes from Southeast Asia on their way over here and and then just play with it so classically trained but playing with it and it's that idea isn't it that you've kind of taken on yeah, no, absolutely. And and although my cooking now, um, and, and certainly since I've had Oclava, um and I kind of, I guess, launched my own career, I wanted a focus um, on my cooking. I didn't want to do, I guess, just what Peter was doing um, in terms of the fusion food, but I do love food from all over. So my cooking for sure has, you know, uh, a Turkish Cypriot, Turkish kind of focus to it. But 
I won't be afraid to use whether it's a bit of soy sauce or a bit of fish sauce in something. For example, I'm not necessarily going to say what what it is on the menu that I'm doing, but I'm I'm not afraid to do that if I know because I understand the principles of what that's bringing, you know, what flavor profile that's bringing to a dish. And if I think it works better, then I'm going to use it. Um, so yeah, like I said, I, th- I think I think that's the thing. And, and as you describe the chefs from those from, from those countries, they are just sort of fearless in their cooking. There's no there's no rules and regulations. It's just cooking without boundary and just saying, well, let's just give it a go and see if it works. Exactly, it's about taste and flavour, which is what your book three is all about. And we'll get onto that in a minute. But let's go back to your background. You grew up in North London um, in a Turkish Cypriot family. Tell us what that was like growing up quite boring <laughs> it was, uh, you know growing up in in north london in an area where all the uh turkish and greek cypriots all seem to settle into one area right I, I think that happens um over many countries you get sort of the whole community settling into one place right um which i think is quite hilarious but um you know i grew up on yeah mum's cooking the um you know, I woke up to the to the smell of frying onions on most mornings. She was always getting the dinner ready, and um, yeah, just quite. You know, and and every summer involved these long trips to Cyprus to go and see my grandparents and and other family out in Cyprus. But you know, at the time, I think I never really appreciated what I was getting, certainly on a on a food level and food knowledge, on those trips. And now it's everything. It feeds back into those memories and those feelings and those tastes from that time. Um, but at the time, I, you know, I had no idea. I was just a kid enjoying <laughs> the beach holidays, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, importantly, it's also those Sundays in Southgate. Um, I mean, Peter Gordon introduced me way back when to the food of Australia and New Zealand. And I went and wrote a book about it, or which is how we got we got to know each other and I found my way to 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 these extraordinary Greeks in Melbourne who told me about the Sunday barbecue the roast lamb on the spit uh, in in Melbourne gardens kind of combated a lot of racism that a lot of these kids were feeling at school because it was almost like the Bisto kids you know you could smell the smell of the spit roast lamb and it's like I want to be friends with that kid (laughs) yeah I mean was it like that in Southgate yeah, well, I guess it was a little bit actually. I, I mean, I certainly remember on the odd occasion that, um, you know, I say it was it was quite religiously on a Sunday that we would we would have those barbecues. But sometimes it was also midweek, certainly in the summer. You know, you take every opportunity that comes your way. I think as a Cypriot household, and so um, you know, a friend would come after school, and it would you know that would be our Wednesday night dinner. You know, before she goes off back home. She's sitting there eating this food, like wow, like this is what you eat, like on a thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's just a bit of you know lamb shish in a pizza bread, bit of salad, like no, no, no big drama kind of thing. But that was just so not you know what she was used to, um, or or even with some of the others as well. So yeah, I think I think there's definitely a, a yeah, bit of that. Yeah, yeah, it's always when you feed others and they they feed that back to you, and it, you see the reflection in their eyes, you know. Like, Okay, I maybe have missed something here. It, it's those stereotypes as well that you were trying to get away from. I mean, every teenager is trying to escape their family stereotype, aren't they? Is that one of the reasons why you went to somebody like Peter, yeah. who at the Providors was just mixing it all up? I mean, you talk about this party in your mouth that he was creating. Was that one of the reasons that you just wanted to kind of explode that idea of where you came from? Um, I think so. I think I think he's, you know, being around him um, and in that restaurant environment, 
with those people, um, with, you know, Peter at the top, obviously leading the way. But I think that definitely gave me the confidence, you know, and not, and not just as a chef. I've, I've said this a few times before as well, is that working with Peter, I was a young, uh, young woman. I was sort of, what was I, around 22, 23 years old. And um, kind of just finding myself as well and, and, and growing up in North London in a Cypriot household, you know, it, was, it wasn't the strictest upbringing, but it was a fairly strict up, upbringing and uh, I wasn't allowed to do many things. And so really being out there in the big bad world and, and going to um, this Marlebone restaurant every single day, working my little heart out <laughs> um, and just learning about life, really, um, more more than anything and, and and with that I just always had a thirst for learning about food you know I think quite quickly into catering college uh, I did a three-year chef diploma and um, within weeks I realized oh I found my calling like this is the first thing I've done in my life where I'm getting praised like left right and center for everything that I'm doing and I, ne- I never really experienced that sort of thing at school here and there but not so much and so um I was I was I thought well I've I've got I've got something here like I really want to work at this and I really want to become really good at it and so that thirst kind of has just drove me for 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 years and still does um but to to learn about food and ingredients and and working at the Providors with Peter was that perfect opportunity and I really grabbed it with both hands and 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 even you know as a as a young chef leaving college the lecturers would very much encourage you to go and work at like michelin restaurants or you know chefs who had bigger names perhaps than peter did at the time and and um i was just there was something in me that just really i just stuck to my guns on it and i just thought no i want to work somewhere where it's good they're good people and it's good food and it's food that i believe in and that's how i believe that i'll get the most out of it and um and that i think yeah worked out <laughs> yeah no absolutely what what was the 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 journey from watching your friends eating your mum's spit roast lamb and thinking westminster catering college <laughs> yeah um i think i was like 12 13 years old and i started really getting into cooking and i was watching every cooking program under the sun reading cookbooks there was what were you watching that's really interesting slightly embarrassed to say it maybe but i was watching ready steady cook a lot <laughs> <laughs> to the point where I really I really knew how to chop an onion before I went to college because <laughs> I'd watched it so many times <laughs> done on there things like that um but that was one of them and then also you know um Saturday Kitchen in it in its original format even was, was a bit different um and um I think it was back when Greg Wallace was pre- presenting it and you know always Rick Stein's little videos were on there and, and I'd sit there with a with a pen and paper and I'd make notes and I'd record wow. and then go back and watch it and make notes of of, of food and and I, Rick is a great uh TV shows are great aren't they because he goes to all sorts of different countries and so I think that was again a part of this sort of thirst for learning about food from all over the world um being ignited at that point and so from there, um, I started throwing these dinner parties at home and uh, for my friends. So it was a group of around, I don't know, seven or eight girls. And I'd throw my parents out for the night. And there I'd, I'd spend like weeks preparing, making notes of like three course meals that I was cooking, going to be cooking for them and stuff. And, and it was great. And we, we, we would have a grand old time. And, um, and so 
from the moment that that started, they just kept going, oh my God, Selin, you have to be a chef. You have to be a chef. You're so good at this. And I would think to myself, oh, well, you know, just because I can cook a little bit at home doesn't mean I've got the you know, skills to be a chef, really. So I didn't really have that, that confidence. And then uh, after uh, doing my A-levels, I did a, a year's art foundation, sort of with the focus of thinking, well, I'm going to end up in doing like interior design or interior architecture or something like that. Um, and then in that year, I was like, this is dreadful. Like, I'm not enjoying this whatsoever. The lecturers don't really like my work. And all I could think about was cooking. And it really took over, like, in that year. Um, and I thought, I just want to do something I'm going to enjoy. And do you know what? I don't care if I make lots of money from it. I'd like to be comfortable in life, but I'm not going to try and chase the thing that's going to bring me money, but not necessarily a huge amount of enjoyment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I went and enrolled at Westminster King's Bay College. And the rest is history. It's interesting how many people I talk to who have that artistic background as well. And I wonder if I've always thought, ever since I first interviewed Marco Pierre White when he was still at Harvey's, you look at his food uh, on the plate and it's stunning. It's a, it's a work of art. You know, it's all very well cooking. I'm not a great artist. I love cooking. What it looks like on the plate probably is never going to look like what it looks like on your plate. How aware are you of making beautiful things on plates? It just does come fairly naturally yeah. to me. And I think there are there are brilliant cooks out there who are more than happy to just, you know, pop it on the plate and that's also fabulous, you know, um because it's there's delicious food. We eat with our eyes though, yeah, don't we? we? Do. I mean, we do, right? And and one way or another it needs to look appealing. If you're coming to pay for a restaurant experience, um, then you want to eat with your eyes and you want to be bowled over, hopefully from the minute that you walk into the, you know, to the second that you leave. And so um, a part of that, I think, is really is showing, is, is making art on a plate. And it's not just with the with the taste, it's the visual, it's everything that goes into it. Um, so I think it's it's part and parcel of what we do. It, it's those components. And let's let's go on to the components that have created your, you know, the basis of your book, mm-hmm. three. It's about building blocks isn't it lots of people have taken these building blocks apart and looked at them and put them back together to teach us how to really elevate our cooking and that's what it's about isn't it people can cook these days but really kind of whack it around your face as you say several times Mm -hmm. in your book um create that party in your mouth that that you describe at the providors when you first ate peter gordon's food is that what it's about? Is it about elevation? Yeah, I think it is. You know, for me, with, with the book, I really wanted to write something that wasn't just a cookbook. I wanted it um, to, I think just as you say there, that, that people are cooking more and more at home, right? And people are fabulous cooks and the, the TV shows and the cookery books are forever being elevated. Um, and, and so people, are, and even their access to ingredients, in a way, especially as a result of the pandemic, you know, people can get access to restaurant quality ingredients now um, fairly, fairly easily. So I think, therefore, in my eyes, I saw an opportunity for also trying to um, elevate the home cook's skills and and try and break down for them, you know, what is, what is it as chefs that we do so naturally? And and I thought about it for myself and when I'm creating food, you know, especially when I'm cooking at home, I just splash a bit of this, do a bit of this, have a little taste. But and I was like, OK, what is it that I'm actually doing? You know, and is that going to be useful for a home cook? And and I hope that, you know, readers do find it useful. I, I think it's it's showing them, you know, a range of different recipes 
and then also giving them lots of ideas and how to how to use those uh, specific recipes in different ways as well. Um, but I really wanted it to be a generous book of ideas and and with that give people the confidence yeah. to be able to create on their own and so breaking down those foundations to, into the acid texture and contrast is how I think um, you can create a really great plate of food yeah and acid you use things like lemon tamarind pickles vinegar sumac um, texture is is about crunch um, contrast is you say is what turns an ingredient into a culinary voyage do you want to just take us through what you mean by that what's this culinary voyage well it's, it's i mean contrast just comes in so many forms you know whether it's the the colors or the hot and cold or the sweet and sour like the the list is 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 endless and therefore it is you know whether it's the party in the mouth or yeah, or the culinary voyage, it's like you're on this journey with what you're eating. And the more that you add onto that plate of food or that meal in itself, it doesn't have to be about one plate, but it could be, you know, a few dishes and therefore coming together, you're creating like this journey where you're going through these um, different sorts of textures. And so they might be crunchy. They may be a smooth puree. There may be the lemon acid and there may be the tamarind, tang you know and and they're all different flavor profiles and I think that's what excites the mouth that's what excites the mind and makes you keep going back for more and more no definitely I mean I'd certainly it really excited a party when I took one of your dishes I took the uh, pepper pasted uh, roast cauliflower um so I I was taking it to a vegan dinner party and everybody else had taken carrot sticks and hummus and I came (laughs) up with this roasted cauliflower that would be charred (laughs) and served with a sumac and lime sauce with (laughs) with roasted onions and it looked amazing and it tasted so fantastic. I mean, it was it was a Turkish pepper paste, wasn't it? What you would have used is um, they're, they're, they're called biber salçası, which basically just translates as pepper paste. Um, and it's, it's like a tomato paste. You can get a mild one and a hot one. Yeah. Um, it's used a lot in Turkish cookery for normally for um, anywhere you would actually with a tomato yeah. paste, I guess. So, so in stews and things like that or slow braises. Um, but never really that I know of has anyone rubbed it all over a cauliflower. Or <laughs> and you put, and you use both those pastes, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So I wanted it to be quite hot, but I thought I thought if I just use the hot one, it's going to be a little bit too much and kind of um, overbearing. And so we do a ratio of the two of them and uh, rub it all over, and then yeah, just just roast it up. And I think that dish has you know been with me since I was doing the pop ups to day one of uh, when I opened the restaurant and it's still on the menu all the time Uh, and I think people um it has its own little kind of cult following now and I think it's because it's the humble cauliflower that most people like oh I just remember eating you know uh boiled to death cauliflower kind of growing up and hating it yeah whereas when you especially when you roast it or char it I think it adds an amazing flavor profile to it well, especially when you do both. And I have to say, they were still WhatsApping me on the Monday morning after the Saturday night before. It was great. <laughs> and my fridge is now full of amazing condiments like the tomato yuzu jam made of tamarind pulp and tomatoes and sugar and garlic and yuzu juice. And, and, and just the gremolatas, you know, parsley, garlic, lemon, oregano, thyme. You know, there are lots and lots of those dressings and, and jams and things that you can easily make up and put it in your, in your fridge and, and, and just transform something as humble as as the cauliflower as you say let's go through your food moments your first is 
Peter Gordon, of course, where it all began, um, and his pork dish at the Providors. Yeah, so just before um, I started working at the Providors, Peter invited me in for uh, dinner. And I went, I remember I went with my sister and, oh God, I just never tasted any food like it. And it was the first thing that came um, onto the table. It was a little snack just to get your juices flowing. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the waitress said, just roll it up, eat it. It's a pork and uh, pork guppy and coconut uh, on, a, on a beetle leaf with tamarillo and, and crispy shallots or something like that, she said. And I was just sat there thinking, God, I'm supposed to know about a, a bit about food. And my sister especially was just like, what are we eating? Because <laughs> like, there's just so many words that you just hadn't heard of, you know. And um, and ate it, and it was just incredible. It was just you know the the heat that was coming from the from the pork. So it was basically so clever as well. And I learned how to make it, obviously working in the kitchens. But they would take the trim from the pork bellies that they would cook, so which was almost sort of confit in a way, the way they'd been slow cooked in its fat, um, and then and then make this um, amazing kind of a curry paste, which was quite fiery. And then you'd add that to the to the to the blitzed um, pork belly, and finish it with coconut milk. And so that in itself was just was was incredible. And that also contained the guppy, which I later learned was fermented uh, shrimp paste. <laughs> and 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 it was real funky from the guppy from the from the it was real funky from the from the guppy paste, but also very like mellow with the coconut. And then there was the heat that would came came through, and you ate it on this beetle leaf this little green leaf which was nice and fresh the tamarillo was a little bit sweet was a little bit sour there was the crispy shallots there was coriander there was just everything going on and i hadn't eaten food like yeah. that before yeah that just that that was the start of like that culinary journey that i was just talking about you exactly know? and that's exactly what peter was talking about when we first talked about you know literally the stuff that he would pick up on a street in vietnam and it's also an, a, a perfect example of what you're talking about with your three, isn't it? That's the party in, in the mouth that you talk about. Yeah, that's the whack you around the face of it with, you know, with flavour profiles there and the tastes that are going yeah. on. And, and um, I don't know, maybe I became also sort of quite addicted <laughs> to that. Um, I think that that food with full on flavour is is what I live by very much now and and I can't help but create food like that so that's what I'm saying is maybe it's almost become a bit of an addiction to me like I can't handle just the simple you know meat and two veg or something I have to add more and more flavor to it because I was about to say you know it's it's just as three as your second food moment which is your Sunday barbecue growing up in Southgate and all of those flavours, you know, you know, the lamb flat with the salad of tomatoes, onion and parsley with lemon juice. I mean, that is as, as much an example of your acid texture and contrast mm-hmm. as is the Peter Gordon dish. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so much simpler, right? Because what we're talking about, uh, lovely um, grilled meats, so there'd be lamb chops and maybe um, uh, lamb shish, certainly. Um, and if we were lucky, they'd also, mum would make uh, chef deli, which is the Cypriot sausages wrapped in lamb cool fat um, and then slowly grilled. They're absolutely incredible, really juicy. And that would all be sitting on top of these pizza breads that will soak up all the juices. And then there was, you know, a table also full of rice and hummus and 
jajik and all sorts of other things as well going on. But there was always just this very simple salad of tomato, onion and parsley and never with olive oil in it. It was always just a bit of salt and, the, and lots of lemon juice in there. And that the acidity that came through from the lemon, certainly, but also um, from, you know, the, the sort of bit of natural acidity that you can get in tomatoes as well. Um, and the pungency of that onion, just it was it would really just cut through all of that rich lamb fat, which was, you know, I look back on that memory and I think it's it's one of those moments that really just was something that was so delicious that I was eating. I just couldn't help but keep going back for more and more and more. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's really driven in me, you know, that kind of like um, need for full on flavour. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's the things that soak up that flavour as well, like your third food moment, actually the dried bread soaked in that salad. I mean, that's very Cypriot, isn't it? Yeah. Um, grandmother would always uh, bake her bread, always uh, spiced with baharat spice. And those loaves would come uh, freshly baked out of her clay ovens. And then as the temperature was dying down from the oven, she would sort of like... Uh, just tear up some loaves of the bread um, and into just random say uh, random sized chunks and then pop it back into the kind of cooled oven and leave it to dry out and some hours later that would be ready and that was always in in good supply um, in their household and we would always bring back as much as we could stuff in the suitcase as well <laughs> even though you could kind of make it at home there was something about the way that she made it <laughs> Um, that was really addictive and 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 my grandfather we would always laugh he bless him he didn't have his own teeth so he, he would wear these fake <laughs> these fake teeth and uh, and he therefore couldn't handle it in its crunchiest version so he would wet them so they would go all nice and soft <laughs> but <laughs> for those of us who did have our own teeth we would um we would love dropping it into this salad and it was the most incredible salad just simple but it was incredible because it was freshly cut from her garden from the herbs to the tomatoes to the cucumbers to lovely um purslane which we struggle to get over here but um it was just so fresh and so vibrant and that was normally with this crispy fried red mullet as well which is my absolute favorite thing that she used to make and then this, there would be bread on the table her bread but then there's also be this this crunchy bread and you just dip one of those into the salad dressing at the bottom um and it was just like soak up all of those flavors and just be oh, absolutely incredible can absolutely taste it right now your final food moment um this is about traveling really isn't it let's it take us first to la boqueria yeah in in barcelona um so at this point i just finished my second year at college i think so maybe around 21 22 we went for a day trip me me and uh, two chef friends uh, into Barcelona and then we ended up staying the night because we just loved it there so much and ended up going out eating drinking having great old time and then wanting to actually go back to uh, the market once again the next day except for we didn't realize it was closed <laughs> but um, on the day that we arrived and we went there um, went into La Bocaria and just the array of color and just activity that hits you as soon as you walk in it was you know I think I'd been to other food markets probably but not really and and that was just like it really takes a hold of you I think that that market and just you walk around and you just you know you just wish that you had a massive shopping trolley so you could just fill up on all the amazing produce that's there and 
the the women with their massive knives and they're hacking away at the fish and and you just kind of want to just light up a barbecue and almost get cooking that's how I would always feel um and then we we ended up perching um at a uh little tapas place uh pinachos on the on the corner there as you walk in and um I don't know if he's still there actually I, I hope he is but um uh him and his uh, nephews uh, cook there and they just, you know, go and I think, and I think this is actually my dream is to have a little place in a market somewhere and just go and buy the ingredients in the day and then just, just cook them up and they're very simply cooking them up with very good olive oil, beautiful, you know, mold and salt being sprinkled over things. Like I remember that those, those two things in themselves, like a great olive oil to finish a dish and a little bit of mold and salt sprinkled over something they were kind of finishing that on every single dish. And that's something I apply in my own cooking a lot now because I think it just elevates something to like another level. Um, and there was one dish in particular, which I absolutely adored. And every single time I go back, I always have it. And it's just these chickpeas cooked with uh, morphia sausage. And there was the odd little raisin in there and some, I think some spices and a few pine nuts and things. And it was just so simple, so unassuming, this plate of like brown, you know, um, chickpeas that sat in front of me and, and, but just one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. And, um, and, uh, and, 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 uh, yeah, I think, I think that experience and, you know, traveling and chickpeas I've grew up with mainly in, in hummus <laughs> and other dishes too, but, I've never eaten it like that. And it's like this kind of fairly everyday ingredient and it's being put in front of you in a different way. And I think that's what travel can do. And I, and I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Although I have to say, you know, you go around most places in London, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, most big cities now, and you will find that fantastic diversity of food experience. You know, that's what's changed in the last 20, 30 years in Britain. That's what I think has made this incredible food culture kind of come alive. It's 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 immigrants food and uh, immigrants feeling so excited about their food in a way that typical Brit never ever felt in their life and then everybody's going what What am I missing out on yeah and I have to say actually you know if it wasn't for that then I would have never have had the confidence to you know open up my restaurant and put my food out there and say I'm gonna show it you know from especially from I think from Cypriot culture because now nowadays my food does branch out more into sort of Turkey Eastern Mediterranean etc as well but you know, at the heart of it are those key Cypriot dishes and grandmother's cooking. And I, and, and if we didn't have that, you know, in the UK, then I would have never have had the confidence to sort of open that restaurant. Yeah. Let's finish just talking a little bit about um, women in hospitality at a time when hospitality is under such threat. Um, is there something particularly about women that is more resilient? I mean, you talk about your grandmother a lot. Um, grandmothers are typically very resilient, way they you know duck and dive and keep it going uh, against all odds what what would you say that you as a woman can bring to this very uncertain time in hospitality um it's a bit of calm and patience and resilience as you say i think i think women are pretty practical <laughs> as well like the, the you know the, the thought process behind everything that we do and all the challenges that we face, it's always just being quite practical about how we're doing things and not, you know, you've got to sometimes just, you can't lead with your emotions too much. Um, myself and Laura, I think just in the hospitality world, just 
stay true to what our values are and, and where we want the industry to go and and um and we we very much believe in supporting staff and 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 doing everything that we can for them to keep improving our own restaurant and therefore hopefully you know in turn setting a bit of an example i think there's a there's a whole group of of great chefs and industry leaders who are trying to make a difference like what what does that change look like for us it means we have scrapped service charge at our restaurant um we we very much believe it's a it's a outdated um scheme um i think it it means reducing um work hours for staff so for for our full-time staff we've reduced down their uh, work hours in a, in a week ensuring that they get uh two days off together so we close the restaurant on on two days uh, and we have done that for many years encouraging a good uh, work-life balance for staff as well listening to them um, adapting to what their needs are for um, anyone who is perhaps starting a family you know being encouraging whatever their request may be for years now whenever I'm hiring someone new and even obviously for the existing staff as well I'm always saying okay well what do you want from this job you know and I think that's been the breakdown for years people have had their it's you work this many hours a week it's this many shifts and that's that and if you can't do that then you don't have a job but ultimately the you know the the decline in chefs and and people to work in hospitality in general as it is at an all-time low now but that has been declining for years and so for years it has been a case of slowly but surely working out how do we address these issues and what can we do so first and foremost for us was really listening to staff and therefore for years I've been adapting the way that we pay to suit you know just because we didn't have that part-time daytime role before okay well let's just give it a go and see what happens and we've done that and actually I have someone who's been working with me as a prep chef for three four years now perhaps and is one of the most valued members of staff that I have and just does the outstanding work for us and so if you don't adapt you don't know what you're going to find out there you know and actually she's a she's like a gold star standard of a of an employee so stuff like that thanks for listening you can buy all the books featured on cooking the books by clicking on the podcast show notes or on the bookshop tab at chinsmith.com and while you're there do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my supper club news and don't forget to rate and review the podcast on apple podcasts I'll see you next week when we're celebrating Christmas with Julia Georgialis, who'll be teaching us how and why to eat our Christmas trees. Bye.